be loved by God. He would carry my burdens. It sounds so good. I accept. I'll take it. I say a prayer. People hug me. I get baptized. But what do I do now? The pastor uses words I'm not sure I understand. The Bible is, well, at least where I'm reading it, a little boring. And prayer is just me staring at a spot on the ceiling. I assume I just need to know more. It's been ten years. I'm married, have two kids, and I'm at the end. I'm tired of listening to my pastor say, give my problems over to the Lord. Don't you think I would have if I could have? I'm tired of fighting with my wife every night. I'm tired of trying to be a father to the kids who could care less about anything I say or have to offer. All those things that supposed Christian life was supposed to be are just not reality. It doesn't work. What's the point? I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain, to cling to, to inhabit, to last, to live, to stay, to abide. What does that mean? What happened to that joy I felt the day this new life started? I am the vine, you are the branches. I had life all along. I didn't have to do anything more to get it. I was connected to it the whole time. But slowly, without even realizing it, I closed off the source. I thought I could do it. I thought I had to do it. But how do I remain? I guess it starts by telling him, I can't. Amen. John chapter 13. How many parents do we have here today? If you're a parent, raise your hand. That's a lot. I know we have a lot of singles, we have a lot of teens, we have a lot of campus, but we have a lot of families here in our church, and we're in a predominantly family-oriented area, so that would somewhat make sense. But if you're a Christian parent, what do you think your biggest concern is for your kids, especially as they grow up? Well, oftentimes we say things like, that they get a really good job. Just turn it down a little bit. That they get a really good job. Or that they make a good amount of money. Or that they're successful. Or maybe they move out of the basement. I mean, none of those are necessarily bad things, but are they really the most important thing on your mind, on your heart, as you're raising your kids? Probably not. I think the most important thing that should be on the mind of any Christian parent is my child going to know the Lord, is going to know Jesus, and stay faithful? And not bag it and give up, that they would continue in Christ. And so to that, to that end, we labor in prayer, we labor in faith, we labor in hard work. We want our kids to, to not only know Christ, but to be able to continue in Christ. What do you think Jesus' biggest concern was for his disciples? That they, that they not face persecution? No. He said, expect that. Do you think maybe it would be that they'd be wildly successful and, and wealthy? No. In fact, he said, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to give up everything. I think Jesus' biggest concern for his disciples is that after he was, was gone, that they would continue with what they knew, what they learned, with the same zeal and the same conviction, the same energy, the same focus that they had when they were with him while he was still alive. Robert Bork writes in, uh, in his book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, 
With each new deterioration, we lament for a moment, and then we get accustomed. Rarely does the second generation hold the conviction of the first. And I think that really is true for many things, for many organizations. They start out great. Business is full of examples like this. They start off really good, but then the next generation comes in, and it just falls apart. And Jesus experienced this very same thing. And no doubt, he was able to look back into Israel's history and look back at the time of, of Joshua, say, when, when the excitement was so high, and to be able to look at the conviction that the Israelites had during that time of Joshua. And then by the time Joshua dies, we get into the period of the judges, and how it was almost lost. And it resembled nothing that it did while Joshua was leading them. And I think Jesus was probably thinking, I wonder if history will repeat itself. After I pass away, will my disciples continue on with that same zeal and level of conviction they had while they were with me? Or would they lose it? You know, Paul told Timothy, he said, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, what are we looking at? He says, watch your life and your doctrine. That if, if we say we are Christians, and if we say we are disciples, then the life that we live and the doctrine that we, we claim to follow the Bible, that they line up. That they really are one and the same then nobody can ever say, well, you say you're a Christian and you say you're a disciple and, 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 and you say you follow the Bible, but somehow there's a mismatch, that there's got to be a continuity between the two. That what we say is our standard is really what we follow. John said it really well. Anyone who claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I mean, you can't really make it much more simple than that. You make the claim, you take the steps. Don't take the steps if you don't make the claim. So we, they, they have to be one and the same. Christianity that actually counts for anything is loving and listening and respecting and speaking and acting and doing and walking as Jesus did. So what would that look like? Jesus spent three years of his ministry building that foundation. That's all he had. He was alive 33, but he had three years that he actively was pursuing a ministry. And he spent those three years walking around the same area. It's about a 30-square-mile area of the Middle East. And all he did was go around from village to village to village, preaching about God, preaching about repentance. And as he was doing this, he was amassing a pretty good crowd. So he had a large throng of people following him eventually. And within that crowd, you had all different kinds of people. Within that crowd, no doubt, there was a fringe. And the fringe loved to watch Jesus because he performed a lot of miracles. And you can just imagine that they're, they're all watching him, kind of like a, like a kid at a circus. Like, what's the next thing? What's he going to do next? Another healing? You know, another, you know, raising from the dead? Is he going to swallow the sword? Is he going to, you know, dance on an elephant? What's he going to do next? There's going to be some big thing. And so they loved his show. But within that large crowd, there was also a core who really believed and really understood the, 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 the meat and the, the meaning of his message. 
And they really, they, they, they hung on his every word. And they were the ones that were to go on and follow him as disciples. And as those disciples, that core was with him, you can imagine all the lessons they learned. And the message and the examples, the lessons were so, they were so fresh. They were so dynamic. They were so powerful. They were so real. They were so inspiring. I mean, they're probably thinking, man, as long as we can follow this guy forever, this is going to be great. They saw all the things that Jesus did. And they loved to be a part of that. I mean, just imagine all that they saw, how much their faith was continually built up and encouraged by being with Jesus. And their convictions were deepening. They're probably thinking, man, this is exactly where we need to be. We need to just follow right behind Jesus. Whatever he does, we, we absorb it all in and we, 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 we do what we can do, but we want to be right there with him every day. We need to be there. But things were about to take a turn for the worse in their minds. Because Jesus eventually has to tell them, I'm not going to be with you physically forever. In fact, my days are very short and you're going to be on your own. And he had to explain that to them. And he does in a conversation that we're going to pick up on verse 33, John 13. My children, I'll be with you only for a little while longer. And you'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I'm telling you right now, where I'm going, you can't come. A new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all will know. That you're my disciples, if you love one another. So you imagine the disciples at this part are getting a little nervous. Like, why are you telling me this? You ever anybody have anybody tell you something and you're wondering, like, as they're going along, like, what are you getting at? Like, you can kind of see the writing on the wall. They're beginning to see the writing on the wall. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Now, up to that point, mind you, they've been able to follow every step of the way. And they were so connected to Jesus physically, emotionally, spiritually. And so Peter's getting nervous. Where are you going that we can't go? Peter replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you'll follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Bear in mind, that's all he's used to, is following after Jesus, literally in his footsteps. I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that where I'm going, but I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, Then you know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? 
even after I've been among you for such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that, that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father, and I'll do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. Why was this such a challenge for them? It hit them hard. We're going to be on our own. Kind of like when you moved out of your house for the first time. And you realize, mom's not cooking. Nobody's ironing my shirts anymore. I'm on my own. That's what they're beginning to think right now. Who's going to do all the amazing things Jesus did? This big crowd follows because Jesus does amazing things. And, and, and now what? Who's going to love all the people? Who's going to meet all those needs? Who's going to tirelessly go out and, and preach about God and, and preach about repentance? Who's going to keep all of this going, Jesus? He says, it's, it's you. You're going to keep all this going. You've got to do the very things that I've been doing. And I'm going to give you the power and the spirit to be able to do it. But you've got to get out there and you've got to be the one doing it. He says, fear not. Even after I'm leaving, my spirit will be there right alongside of you. And he says, and this is probably encouraging but frightening, you'll do even greater things. You're thinking, greater things? How can we possibly do greater things than what we've seen Jesus do? But that's what he says. You'll do even greater things. Did they really believe that? I mean, I bet there was a lot of doubt in that room. Can we really do this with Jesus no longer around? You know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, for us today, following Jesus, is that we're about 2,000 years removed from all the stuff that Jesus actually did. Their stories, they're in the Bible, they're encouraging. We read them over and over again. But we're pretty far removed. We, we never actually saw Jesus do anything. Not a single thing, Physically. I mean, how much easier would it be for us if Jesus was right there physically with you every step of the way? I mean, faith would be pretty easy, right? But he's not. We're 2,000 years removed. You know, I think one of the most nerve-wracking things to do would be to fly a plane. Now, I still want to do it one day. And I've actually operated a plane, but I've never taken off and I've never landed but that, to me, would be one of the most nerve-wracking things. Steve DeFilippo told me that to be a pilot, you need about 25 or 30 hours of, of ground school. Then you need about 35 hours uh, in, the, in, the, in the plane with, a, with an instructor. And then you're ready for your first solo flight. Now, I would imagine taking off would be fairly routine. You get that, you're on ground, you go, you get to a certain speed, you do certain things, the plane goes in the air. Once you're in the air, that's when it gets tough. Because when you're flying with your instructor, if you mess up, 
Your instructor's right there to take over and land the plane nice and safe. I would think being up there without the instructor and getting ready to land would be terrifying for the first time. So what, what do you do? You've got to think back. This is what he showed me to do. This is what, this is, you, you press this, you pull this, you do this, you do that. The plane comes down, hopefully nice and safe. Two things would be tested. Your faith and your skill. And you would really have to rely on what you learned and what you knew to be right and just stick to it. You know, those first century disciples, they were about to enter into a world that we know only too well. And that's following Jesus with no physical Jesus to follow. And I think for them and for us, it's probably one of the biggest tests of your faith. It's like this is all somewhat theoretical. Because there's no real hard evidence right there to prove it. And that really is the definition of faith, right? Faith is being, is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. And I believe the key to continuing faithfully as a disciple is found in what Jesus told them next. Look at chapter 15. I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, then you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And this is to my Father's glory, that, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that my joy may be you in you and that your joy may be complete. And my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because the servant doesn't know his master's business. But instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. What stands out to you? It's not a text. But what, jump, what jumps out? There's, there's two things for me. He talks about remaining ten times. This after saying, just prior to that, that he's leaving. But now he says, stick, remain, abide, hold on to you. 
that even though he wouldn't be around physically, he says it's imperative that you stay connected. If you're going to remain faithful, you've got to stay plugged in and to be able to see those greater things. And then he talks about being fruitful nine times. And if you look at this, Jesus carefully intertwines those two. Remain fruitful. Remain fruitful over and over again as though they were inseparable. I remember going to college. I studied music in college. And I remember one of my saxophone teachers drilled this one point all the time. He said, you've got to work on two things. You've got to work on your tone. If you don't have a good sound, nobody's going to want to listen to you. But then you've also got to work on your technique. Because if you don't know how to play the instrument, you might have a great sound, a great tone, but if you can't play the instrument, nobody's going to want to listen to you. So you've got to work on those two. Tone, technique, remain fruitful. They're inseparable. Well, what is remain? What is fruitful? Remain, we know, to stay connected. And I think we have a pretty good understanding of that. So we are in a very connected generation, right? Because everybody has a personal connection device that you carry with you everywhere. Have you ever forgotten your phone? How do you feel when you go out of your house and you forgot your phone? Don't you feel terrible? Like you have a little panic attack, like, oh, my gosh, I don't have my phone. What am I going to do? I'm disconnected. And you, you dash back home to get that phone. What if you lose the phone? That's like a double panic because now you lost the phone. You're not connected, but you're also out like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to pick out whatever phone you like. So that's a frightening feeling. What did we do before this, this age of instant connection? Well, we did this. Look up there. Florence is laughing. Can you read that? That, those are just a few of a box of letters that Florence and I have from when we were dating. You can't see the dates, but most of these are dated around 1980 or so. She was doing a show. So you see, uh, she was in Atlantic City at that time. I was living in upstate New York. I have stacks of these that go back from when I was in college, different addresses, boxes of them. I'm not going to tell you where they are. They're secret. But we have them. But this was before the days of long distance, you know, or, or uh, the back in the days, rather, of long distance phone rates. So you, you really couldn't use your phone very much because the call, like, even just out of your town was, was crazy. So how do we remain in Jesus if we can't text, if we can't in- instant message him? Well, we've got the obvious things, right? You can You can pray. You can read your Bible. You've got to do that. I will never argue that. But I think it's deeper than that. Because you can read your Bible all you want. And you can pray all you want. And still be very disconnected from Jesus. Your mind is engaged. But your heart might be far away from it. Because it takes a continual engagement of the heart. To really be able to remain in Jesus. So a few things come to mind. You've got to remain honest. You know, if you look back at verses 2 and verses 6, he talks about this pruning. He says it twice. That there's got to be this, this 
cleaning up process. I think he said that because some of the disciples probably had some issues. They weren't doing well. We've got to be honest. There's a lot of time when we're just not doing well. Now, we can come in and we can pretend like we're doing well, and we can put on the I'm doing well face, and we can say all the right things. But the fact of the matter is, if we're really honest with each other, myself included, there are times when we're just not doing well. And we don't want to say we're not doing well for whatever embarrassment or or reason it might be there. But there's times when we're not doing well. Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool all the people some of the time, and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And I'll take it a step further. You cannot fool God any of the time. Because God always knows where you're at. And so when Jesus says there's this pruning process, this cleaning up process, if you're going to remain in me, man, we've got to take that to heart. We need to look at ourselves honestly and say, what, what needs to get cleaned up? Where am I not connecting? And it's causing me to not do well spiritually, whether it be relationships, whether it be some sin that is just dragging you down, that you just refuse for whatever reason to get rid of. It's an issue with somebody else. It can be a lot of things. Laziness, whatever it might be. Be honest when you're in a slump or when you're, in, when you're struggling. Open up. Don't play, don't play that I'm fine game if you're really not fine. Let God work on you. Let, let people in your life prune away what's holding you back. He also talks about remaining obedient. In verse 10, verse 14, the same thing. You know, the idea of, of obedience puts a lot of people off. Do you like it when somebody says, you need to be obedient? I mean, isn't there a part of you that just kind of cringes? like, you aren't the boss of me. You can't say that to me. This happens a lot in church. You know, man, it's just, it's just me and the Bible. That's it. <laughs> you can't tell me anything. Look, nobody's trying to be the boss of anybody. Jesus is the boss of all of us, if you want to get right down to it. But Jesus says there, there, there's an obedience component that is so important to our staying faithful. Because the moment we think, man, I'm just going to do what I want to do, forget what you said, forget what the Bible says, I mean, that's when we're in trouble. I think we have a hard time with obedience in the church because of, well, 2,000 years of bad theology. That certainly, you know, hasn't helped any. And I think a lot of bad motives. But obedience in and of itself is a really good thing. And it's a lot easier to, to do and to, and to swallow and makes a lot more sense when you understand the value that is to be gained by being obedient to things you know are right and true. I mean, if you can say there's a little part in your brain that, that clicks on when somebody says, you just need to do this. You just need to follow this. You need to obey this. If a part of you clicks on, yeah, you're right. You've got to stop right there and say, you know what? I'm not going to tune this out. I'm going to hear this out, and if I believe the, the, the person that's, that's coming at me with this is trustworthy and right on the money, I'd be a fool to, to, to turn away. We don't do that in other places. So if you're sick and you trust your doctor, and your doctor says, do this, take this, whatever it is, more than likely you're going to follow what that doctor says if you trust and believe them. 
The same thing holds true with your mechanic or your, you know, personal finance advisor or your career counselor, whatever it might be. Somebody with a proven track record and experience, you're probably going to listen to. And maybe somebody that you would consider to be a true friend. And maybe they want to give you some marriage advice or, or parenting advice or spiritual advice. You believe them, you trust them, you're going to listen. And I think this is where Jesus really shines. Jesus says in John 12, For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me all that I have spoken, and I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. You see, Jesus is the boss of you for a really good reason. Because what he says comes right from God. We can fully trust his motives, his intent, and his word. We're going to remain in him. We've got to do what he says, even when it's tough. And then he says remain devoted. Devoted in the New Testament, the word literally means addicted. Now, usually addicted is not a good thing. Right, we look at that word and we like immediately we think of drugs, alcohol, you know, a number of things. But in this case, it's a good thing. You've got to have that kind of connection with Jesus. Addiction means I can't live without. I've got to be there. You know, it's almost this involuntary action. I've got to be there. I've got to do this. That's how we need to be with Jesus. It's a drive that is like unstoppable. Because Jesus is Lord. And I think when we have that level of honesty, when we have that level of obedience, and we have that level of devotion, when we're really connected well, then and only then will you see the abundance, the abundant fruit that Jesus talks about. And you'll see it in a bunch of different ways, those greater things. You'll see it in your own life in your faith, in your confidence, in your generosity, in your grace, in your forgiveness, in your surrender, in your joy, in your compassion, in your humility. All the things that we see make up Jesus, they'll be in your life. But then it goes beyond that. Because you'll be abundantly fruitful in the impact that your life can have. Because when you've got these really working well together for you, people are going to notice. They're going to say, wherever you are, there's something different about you. Can you tell me what it is? Can you explain to me? Can you show me what it is? And you'll say, yes, I can do that. Because your life will bear fruit in the people that you are now helping to know God. So remain in him. And there will be no doubt that what he has built will continue through our generation and through the next generation. Amen.